God, we just invite you back. Actually, we invite ourselves back into your presence. He didn't leave, but we got busy with with lunch. I'm a wanderer, so I'm going to have to have... Okay. So, God, we, we got busy with food and talk and fun, and so now we invite ourselves back into your presence, God, and... We know you're here and we know that you're going to do great things in us. So we lay ourselves before you. We rest in your presence. We know that you're so good and you're better than we could imagine. You're in a good mood. You're not upset. You're not fretting. You're worrying about tomorrow. You're not even worried about us. You know that you will finish your work in us because... Your son, Jesus, is the author and perfecter of faith. And God, we thank you that we're in that kind of a family. That we're adopted into this family and we're not outsiders, we're not beggars. But we're sons and daughters, adopted in, grafted in. Oh Lord, put that on us and teach us what that means. Thank you, King. So we dedicate the rest of our day and we expect great things in Christ to be done in Jesus name amen amen I've got a couple more things to talk about um, these uh, my son is a musician and he writes music that is intended for the world not the church the church is pretty pretty sung to but the world is kind of shouted at. So he's put together some uh, music to sing to the world. And it's um, and if you're interested in that, uh, his first CD, Someday When I'm Young, his second CD, Beginnings, these are not worship CDs. These are music CDs for the world to, to hear. But uh, several of the songs um, dissipate, has a unique anointing to break suicide. Uh, it's pretty remarkable, actually, over and over again. Uh, and Donna knows the stories better than I. She does better at this part than I. But she, um, we have s- multiple stories about uh, people saying, like mommies, saying, daughter, you got to listen to this song. And the daughter who's suicidal, not interested, then does listen to it and just, just has a, a revelation of her value in life. And So there's some pretty powerful stuff in his music. Of course, I'm proud of him, but that's what this is about. Those are out there if you're interested in one. This one, the first one he did when he was, I think, 18. So he's pretty young in that one. Beginnings, he just finished it last, I think, last December or something like that. Yeah, December 12th, he finished that. 12, 12, 12. Uh, Apple a Day. This is um, a little compilation of writers. I'm one of them, but there's a bunch of people from Bethel wrote in this. And um, it's, it's an interesting hodgepodge of Bethel people. Kevin Dedman, Teresa Dedman. Donna has a, has a chapter. I have a chapter. Chris Gore, you may know of him in the Healing Rooms, has a chapter. Um, several others on here that I know, but you wouldn't. Uh, terrific people. Uh, my, it's, it's on healing, and my session is on healing your finances. So that's what this is, Apple a Day. And uh, we have been experimenting in this seminar around um, 
the prosperous soul message and the content that you have, but I've also been mixing it heavily with financial sozo. And uh, normally when I teach on a week-to-week basis in my church on a Sunday morning, um, there's a lot of exercises and things going on, but they tend, it's, tends to be a little different. What you're experiencing is a hybrid, which I'm happy to say. I think it's really working well. And you're experiencing a hybrid of prosperous soul and financial sozo. So the last thing I'll mention is financial sozo is actually in a manual. This is it. They're out there if you want them. There's also uh, by another author, and Donna knows this guy, and I've met him, Jeffrey Barr. She's, he's a hilarious, terrific guy, sweetheart. But he wrote a thing on educational sozo. So there's some cool tools. These are, uh, I can't speak to Jeffrey's, but mine is basically aimed at the person who is giving a sozo. Does that make sense? And uh, this prosperous soul manual that you have in front of you is basically a financial sozo aimed at the receiver of the sozo. Does that make sense? So if you're curious of the mechanics that are going on, uh, they are slightly different than... Uh, regular sozo stuff. If you're a sozo person, there is a couple of new little tricks in there, but primarily it's um, written, targeted for the person who's interested in giving a financial sozo. So there you go. Awesome. We have uh, a couple of things I just want to recap from the first night. It's not if, but when. Remember that? It's not if, but when. What's the context of that? The context is that the test, remember there's the circle on the board and the cycle that we go through in life. And uh, if you're at the bottom, it's not if, but when God's going to deliver you from that place. So that's a, a declaration of hope for you. But likewise, we go on and when God does deliver you, that's when the test begins, right? The test is at the top. So it's not if, but when, and the test is at the top, Right? That's what we've got to learn. We've got to learn how to carry. We also talked about perfection. Who in here now feels comfortable in saying, I can be perfect? We've got to work on it, but we can be perfect. We can develop. Not in the way that the Greeks perceive us, without a flaw, measuring up to some I- ridiculous, idyllic image, but to perform in the space that God designed for us, to fill out that place. And that is so important because, do you know that every, let me say it this way, our lives are lived very much like a great novel. Every great story in history has three characters, the victim, the villain, and the hero, right? There's always a good guy, There's always a bad guy, and there's always somebody that is being afflicted that the hero needs to rescue. That just makes a great story. Well, what's interesting is we all play that out all the time. We all live our lives practicing the different roles. And when I'm telling you that we can be perfect, like the Hebrew idea of perfection is to operate as designed, another way to look at that is to live your life as the hero, not as a villain, not as a victim. See, most of us with finances perceive ourselves as victims because stuff happens to us, right? Finances happen to us. Unemployment happens to us. Job changes happen to us. But 
That is the language of a victim. That is a perception that things greater than you have oppressed you and you have no recourse. See, we have this problem with that kind of logic. Is When you read about refugees or people that have moved to America who have come from terrible conditions and end up being massively successful in the United States. Irish, you know, Chinese, there's so many different repeated stories over time where these these people have come, you know, fleeing from terrible circumstances. They come to the United States, their father was poor, their mother was poor, they did everything they could to provide for their children, and by the second generation they own all of the dry cleaning stores on the East Coast, or they, you know what I'm saying? It, it's just a remarkable. I was in um, Sierra Leone, and I've only been to Africa once, so I, haven't, I don't have a ton of experience, but I went there for about a week and a half, and I traveled with some great men. This wasn't a Bethel Church trip, but it was just another terrific church in Texas, and I went with them, and we... We wandered around there and we did two conferences. The first one was aimed at believers, um, pastors, I should say, at the pastors from the whole country. And the second one was aimed at the businessmen in in the country, like an entrepreneurial session. And it was so amazing being in Africa, but it was my first time to see abject poverty in person. Poverty at every level, poverty economically, poverty physically. You know, Sierra Leone was the place where they, uh, they would chop one another's hands off. It was, a, it was an act of war from rebellion. Um, it was actually, the re- I don't know if you know this, but the president at the time uh, made, a, made a declaration to his people in Sierra, Sierra Leone, and he said that hope is in our hands. We have the capacity to save this country. Hope is in our hands. And so the the, uh, the bad guys decided to deliver a bag full of hands to his front porch. That's where that war began. Just, you know, poverty at levels that we just um, have a hard time imagining. And so I was there and I saw them. You know, they walk around without limbs. Um, pretty awful. But what was amazing to me is those are, I found some of the most prosperous people I'd ever met in that environment. People with no shoes, people who cooked their meals outside because there was there's, they're living in little stick homes. Literally, this isn't Disneyland. This is in, those of you who have been there know it. If you've never been there, it's unbelievable. They cook in little coal fires in their front yard. That is their kitchen, and uh, they live day to day. This one woman, I saw hundreds of them, but this one woman would get up every day, hike into the woods, jungle chop down trees into these limbs. The limbs are about as big around as my arm, about as long as my arm, a little bit longer, and bundle them in stacks about, oh, two feet across, rounds, right? They would take twine and tie them into these little bundles and stack them along as she went. And the deeper and deeper she went, and then when she was done, she would spend the rest of the day lifting these bundles and carrying them all the way back to a pit, and they would throw them in the pit, and they would burn them into coal blocks. And then they would use the coal blocks to cook a dinner 
And by the end of the day, she would finish this crazy routine to make a hot meal for her and her family, probably just her children because her husband would have been abandoned her by now. And then tomorrow she gets up and do the same thing. I mean, that was her whole existence. It was brutal. I tried to lift one of those bundles. I couldn't even lift it. And these little ladies are walking around like they're a pot of water on their head, you know, la, 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 walking through the woods. And the woods every day get farther and farther away because they're cutting down the trees. It's unbelievable. And yet there was no poverty in that woman. You know, we, we make excuses, don't we? Oh, my word. You know, it's, there's, Donna has a ministry series called Shifting Atmospheres. And I'm part of that. And, uh, but she's, she's really good at it. She can go into an atmosphere and shift the mindset or the, 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 the uh, kind of the spirit in a room or in a city or wherever she's at. She does that because she goes to all these crazy places and teaches. Right? She has to know how to adjust and recognize when atmospheres aren't her. She'll go in somewhere and she'll be angry. And she has to get rid of that and teach through that. She has to shift that anger and just that whole understanding of how that stuff is in the atmosphere and not your own and really interesting stuff. But I'll tell you what. We need to learn how to shift atmospheres in here. Right here. I think we walk around with a victim paradigm and it lives right in here, right in our noggin, right between these two ears. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's here. You know, behind our rib cage in our heart. But wherever that thing lives, if we can switch that, it changes your opportunities. It's an opportunity to move from the victim to the hero. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about was an exercise. This is where we're going to start. Is an exercise in that experience of learning how to be a hero with your money and not a victim. Or a villain. You know, a victim and villain are basically the same thing. One feels weak and the other feels mighty. One is getting revenge and the other feels destroyed, right? But really, they're both the same side of a coin. The hero is the new thing. Um, I really think that the enemy sends... I'm quoting somebody here. I'll make a point and then I'll tell you who I'm quoting. It's not an exact quote. I'll make it an exact quote. Excuse me. Let me grab this. You see, the enemy of our hearts, uh, the devil, sends, sends things to us in pairs of opposites so that we will spend our time wrestling with the two extremes. Do you remember Yes, the first night I taught about poverty and mammon and how poverty tears us down tells us we're worthless, tells us we're, uh, there's never enough, on and on it goes. It pulls you down. Mammon, on the other hand, puffs you up, tells you you deserve it. It's a spirit of entitlement over there. It, uh, this is fear-based. This is ambition-based, selfish ambition-based, okay? This being mammon on the right, well, your left, and on your right is, is uh, poverty. But what's interesting is the church spends so much time... I, in other words, I don't want you to spend any time moving between these two, these two ends. Who cares what the church has been doing? Let's go for the juggler here. Yeah. 
what we've got to do is figure out how to move through. We've got to get past. You see, when, when we are wrestling with poverty and mammon, here's what it looks like. I'm going to do a little play acting for the typical process. We get money. We get around money. We have an opportunity to get money. And we like that because money is powerful. But when we have money, we start approaching this thing called mammon. And when we approach this thing called mammon, we know that God doesn't like mammon. And so we migrate away from mammon. We say, well, especially if you're confused that mammon is money, which it's not. The first night we said, mammon is not money. Mammon is wealth personified. You remember that? Or money deified. It's different than money. But as I move around here, if I decide, well, over here I feel kind of guilty because I have wealth. So I'm going to like not have wealth. So I'm going to move this direction closer to poverty. I'm going to get where there's less money so that I'm not threatened by mammon. Problem is over here, it stinks. It's awful. Not having enough money stinks. So we begin to think, well, maybe I can have a little bit more money. So we move back over here and we get a little bit more money. We begin to work harder. We begin to save. However that looks in your life, we move back towards more money. But this is really conflicting because we feel guilty over here, especially if pastor sees us. Right? That's really bad. So when pastor's around, we kind of scoot back over here because this is more holy. See, the, the church has associated poverty with holiness. But man, I've got, a, I've got a big old news flash for you. Do you know that when you're... The reason the church has done that for a couple of reasons. One of them is that when you're broke, when you're on the bottom of the circle and you're praying, oh God, this is not a drill. That, that <laughs> prayer? That's the one I pray at Bethel, verbatim. This is not a drill. I need it now. I'm talking about covering payrolls or making debt payments or whatever. Paying rent, whatever. When you're, when you're broke, does not your prayer get really beautiful and simple? Don't we just get humble and devoted to Christ? Don't we? Oh, God, I'll never, ever, ever speed again. I promise. I promise. I will not eat that extra ice cream. I won't. I promise. I won't ever do that again. If you will just rescue me this time, I swear, I swear, I will lose that weight. You watch. I promise. Right? We get so devoted to Christ. And then when we get the breakthrough, we're like, God doesn't care about that extra pound. Right? We kind of lose that innocence. Okay, the news flash is that whether you have money or don't, you are supposed to have that beauty and purity in your devotion to Christ. What would happen in your life if you could keep hold of that beauty and purity in your prayers, but you had a storehouse of wealth? How would your life shift? This is where we're heading. Because if you can hang on to that, if you can be that devoted, simple, beautiful person 
that is just led around by the Spirit. Lord, anything you ask, anything you ask. I just, you know, when we're in that place, you will navigate past poverty and mammon. You will navigate past. Without that capacity, you're going to stay working your way back and forth between these two tensions. Does that make sense? Now here's the quote. The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern than that with either of them. Last night I told you, that, by the way, was C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And that's something. C.S. Lewis had it right. He recognized how the church, the, the, the temptation is, forget the church, we are the church. Our temptation is to spend all of our time balancing between these two. Over here is unholy, over here is unholy. But we feel like this is a little less unholy than that, so we find our place between these two boundaries. It is a complete and utter waste of time. Because all it does is keep us in tension between two evil islands. Do you remember my islands the first night? Sailed around poverty, sailed away, and went right to Mammon. and started. The risk was, I didn't, but the risk was that I would sail around Mammon. But as I was going across that open sea, God said, I want you to sail out. And I went out into that open ocean. Out there, it's really risky. There's no boundaries. There's no touchstones. It's hard to get your footing. There's things you're not familiar with. There's waves. I'm telling you that as a prosperous soul, when you, when you occupy your space as perfect, right? when you begin to do that and you live as a hero, you might find yourself in some really uncomfortable conditions. You might find yourself in confrontational dialogues with people. But as a victim, you'll react with either you'll collapse. As a villain, you'll strike back. As a hero, you'll interact. We, we have the possibility of navigating through this, of navigating through out into this open ocean. The dream did go on. It was a vision, but it did go on. And uh, there was a land that I saw far away. And I didn't get to land on it yet, but I'm hoping that I get to finish that vision one of these days. But I realized that there's, I was circling on islands, minor islands. And in the context, there's a mainland, there's a continent, promised land, right? But you've got to get there through this thing. We've got to learn how to navigate through so what I did is I had you guys do an experiment. We're going to pass around the mic and just see where we go on this thing. But I'm going to teach you about a tool called the Purpose Train. But before we get there, I gave you a little assignment. I gave you a million dollars. Man, is this a great deal or what? You pay to come to this little seminar, 15 bucks, and you get a million dollars back, right? This thing's going to take off and go viral. I just know it. But here's the thing. If you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And it was an experiment in, let me start dreaming and thinking, what would I do with a million dollars? How many of you, just raising hands, 
How many of you have never even thought about what would happen if I had a million dollars? It was the first time it ever occurred to you. One, two, three, four, five, seven, ten, maybe. Yeah. Just never really thought. Why? Because we're busy with our day-to-day, right? We're just trying to make rent, right? Or maybe we're building a retirement plan, or maybe we're trying to get our kid through college, or ourselves through college, or whatever we're doing. How many of you um, experienced that a million dollars was more money than you could even imagine spending? A few. There's a few. Yeah. Some people come like a million dollars. How many of you started down the list? Let's say you said, um, oh, I'm going to give a million dollars. Okay. I'm going to put 300000 pay off my house. And then... So you got 700 left. And then maybe I'm going to give $100,000 to my kid's college fund or whatever. But anyway, you go through a list and you end up with a big chunk of money you didn't know what else to do with. Anybody experience that? There's a few. So it was like, where do I go with the rest of this money? Perfect. How many of you worked through it and figured out that a million dollars was almost nothing? Okay. <laughs> How many of you paid taxes on that million dollars? Okay. How many of you forgot all about taxes? That's all right. Both of you are right, both sides, because you could... The ones who said it was a million dollars, it came in as a taxable income. The ones who got it as... It didn't pay taxes, it's because you uh, got it as a gift or an inheritance and it wasn't taxable. See, so you're both right. That's right. See, I'm a tax guy, and I know how this works. So you're both right. Yeah, yeah. Seek professional advice, please. Um, How many of you were couples and walked out with $2 million? Aha. How many of you as couples um, found out that you had independent uses of your millions? Couple, okay. How many? Yeah, kind of. Mixed. So then there's how many of you realize that, oh, we only have to pay off the mortgage one time, but we have $2 million and things like that. So kind of a combined visions. None. Okay. No, I know what's going on. That's good. Okay. Um, How many got a list um, of, let's say, 10 items or longer? Okay. How many got a list... Less than 10. Most of us, okay. How many got a list less than five? Awesome. How many wrote me as in as your child and got inheritance? None? Oh, well. Okay, well, I'd be curious what some of you guys used uh, up your money on. Um, maybe we could pass around the mic. And is it, who would like to volunteer? Maybe just say uh, the top three things that you were going to do. Let's go over there. Sheila. I'm actually only had two things, really, but it's not like they're complete. My first one, I put a house, but it was because I want a bigger house. I want somewhere where I would be, be able to host meetings and be able to have people stay. My current house doesn't have Okay, that. excellent. So it was, what it showed me was, I just came and sat back here, was that that was enlarging my territory. 
The other thing that I put on there, which isn't the complete part, is of course wanting to give and invest. But it, when it came to thinking, I started to think of this as like charities, missions, people. And then it was like, stop. And it was like, no, travel. Hmm. I need to go to places and find out what does God want me to do in this particular place. Wow, fun. It wasn't a case of, you know, meeting an immediate need necessarily in every case. Because sometimes when you do that, it doesn't take away that need. It just solves it temporarily. So what I felt like he was showing me was that he would give me ways as I travel to different countries, or even maybe in America, or Europe, anywhere, where he would send me. But it would be looking at ways that it would help solve a problem, be a solution to a problem. And maybe that would be in terms of training and equipping to bring about those changes. That's great. To produce um, fruit from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So grow some fruit and get people out of the situation. That's awesome. Because I have a heart, you know, if I was going to give permissions, one of the top ones would be the sex slave trade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, children that are in bondage, sticky children. Um, but I know there's benefit to putting money into things like that, but there's also got to be another way. And I don't have the answers, mm -hmm. but I know the one who does. Mm, good so word. I would need to go there and have him give me the strategy. That's so good. So that's why I haven't got two things, but my Those are monstrous. That's awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> that's so good. Excellent. Someone else. Yeah. Let's give someone else. Those were good, huh? But don't be intimidated. Yeah. Album. So you're a singer, songwriter, musician? Yeah. Worship. Worship. Okay, so I'm going to call it, I'll just say albums. Excellent. Yeah. So my first one was payoff student loans for my children. Okay. Okay. Excellent. For displaced people. Yes. Wow. Nice. And the third one was to sew into the places that have sewed into me. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sewing. Okay. Excellent. Let's get a couple more. Yeah, let's do two more. 
I was first going to buy an air conditioner for the church you went to last night. <laughs> <laughs> Word, right there. That's awesome. <laughs> ah, so a sustainable flow, cash flow. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's beautiful. Yeah. Let's do two over on this side. Those are awesome. So good. So good. Let's do, let's do one more. really good awesome okay let's let's come on in let me uh this is this is perfect you guys did awesome the the million dollar piece of paper was just a tool to help you begin to think about what would i do with it and um one of the problems that we're moving past but one of the problems that i want you to move past is the inability to dream or imagine okay feels like you guys have that. There's resources in 
cha- uh, session one in your manual so you can go back and see how to restart that dreamy engine. And we briefly mentioned that last session. I won't repeat it again now. But, but the next thing is once you begin to ask and imagine and dream, you start thinking, I want to start a homeopathic uh, center. I want to train for, you know, relief all over the world, the next hurricane, the disaster that would happen. Imagine a bunch of Bible-believing revivalists swarm in there and just, you know, imagine laying the hands on the sick and watching them be healed right there and just, just the, you know. So we begin to dream about those things. Um, and uh, we begin to put, the, we, it feels kind of like throwing spaghetti around. You're just throwing it around, see what sticks, you know. It's just like, <laughs> Wow. And uh, that's a fun thing to do. Uh, I love to do that. I love to ask and imagine. I love to imagine what would happen if, um, you know, my own little, my own, not little, massive, crazy, gigantic dreams are, Danny Silk calls them his, the BHAG, B-H-A-G, the big, hairy, audacious dream, <laughs> BHAG, or goal, big, hairy, audacious goal. So, you know, one of mine is, for example, what if I could um, find a way to teach finances that sweep across the United States like a virus, goes viral in American culture, and we turn around the the, uh, kingdom economy in America. We recapture the assignment, I believe, on America to fuel the kingdom come all over the planet. What if we stopped... Yeah. What if we stopped spending the money on ourselves? Well, how would we do that? We've got to connect people to their purpose. We've got to connect them to the reason they're alive. There's, um, there's a, a terrific teacher named Ed Silvoso. Has anybody heard of Ed Silvoso? He wrote a terrific book ahead of its time called Anointed for Business. If you haven't read it, you might find it interesting. And uh, in it, he makes a couple of quotes. I actually met Ed uh, about a year ago, and he's an interesting man. He's, he's a giant. He's an apostle. And the guy has been going into these foreign countries for years, way before it was fancy, before anybody even thought to do this, and go into these countries and help them take, get language around and culture around the idea of the church being involved in re-engineering an economy in an area and watching them become self-sustaining. Ah, it's amazing. The guy's a giant. God bless that man. But he told me and some others, we were in this meeting, and he, a small meeting, and he, he, he admitted something. He said that the pain of the rich is much deeper than the pain of the poor. Isn't that weird? He said because the poor still think money is the answer. And the rich know better. They have nothing inside. There's another guy that I really respect. He's not a believer. His name is Daniel Pink. Well, maybe he's a believer. I don't know. I don't know him well. He's written a bunch of books, and I've had one brief email exchange with him, and he's just a fascinating guy. But he wrote a book called A Whole New Mind. And it's a quite, quite an excellent book. And in this book, he talks about the change of culture. We've moved from back, if we just, this is, I'm elaborating now on his message. But back in time, we were an agricultural, 
Actually, if we go back farther, we, were just kind of a, we just kind of hunt and kill the whatever we needed. And then we began to settle. So we moved from a hunting age to an agricultural age. And we learned how to grow food. And we would save up enough to make it through the winters. And we just basically became an agricultural age. And then it moved out of that and it moved into the industrial age. And that's where we started building our big locomotives and buildings and, and all that stuff. And, and the skill sets in the industrial age were different than what you needed in the agricultural age, right? In the agricultural age, you imagine a farmer on a little farm. You need to know how to, how to make a, sh- a horseshoe and put it on your horse. You need to know how to take care of that horse. You need to know how to plant and then harvest. You just needed, you needed to know a little bit about a ton of things. In industrial age, you got really specialized and people learned how to stand at a machine, like a machine themselves, and turn a nut a thousand times a day and then do it again tomorrow. And, and, and things got really specialized. Does that make sense? So this, the, the skills that made you succeed in the industrial age were different than the, what they were in the agricultural age. And then, a, and then a massive change happened and we entered a new period called the information age. And that's... You know, we, we know a lot about that. We introduced the computer in this, and we learned how to... Uh, we learned this thing called Google, and we learned that we could find out uh, so much in, uh, in, you know, about everything. And in the, in the information age, information became the most powerful thing in the world. And so, you're, again, your skill sets shifted, and the, uh, the, the person who could stand uh, during the industrial age... Unless they adapted, they kind of fell behind, and the people that were skilled in the information age outpaced the people in the industrial age. Does that make sense? And so, you know, what you got in the industrial age, specialized mechanical skills, you got in the information age, specialized information skills. And I, as a CPA, was a classic illustration of that. I I was a trained um, karate expert. No, not really. I was a trained, um, I was just making sure you're not asleep. Uh, but I, I was, you know, as an accountant, you're trained on how to audit a set of books and look at a piece of thing, a thing called a financial statement and read stuff out of it and tell things about it and blah, blah, blah. So you got accountants who got really narrow and really deep in one particular area. Same with attorneys, and you get specialized attorneys, and, you know, everybody's specializing, and their knowledge gets really deep. They become a silo of information, and that's where you go if you need to learn anything. Well, Daniel Pink, uh, his point is that we've left the information age. That that is behind us. In fact, if your skill set is built around the information age, you're actually like a dinosaur. You're, you're kind of falling behind. And it won't be long until this next age emerges and the skills that are its specialty will make these people obsolete. Like the buggy whip. You know, nobody needs buggy whips anymore. Well, the new age, according to Daniel Pink, is called the conceptual age. Conceptual age. And the reason you need a conceptual age is because the information age has made people like me obsolete who are narrow and deep silos of a specific knowledge. In the conceptual age, you need somebody to come and bring meaning to information. None of us have a need for an expert 
on any topic in the universe. Literally, you can Google it or Bing it or whatever you use. And I don't know much about Bing, but I do know that if I go to Google and I put in the word spoon, I will know more about spoons than anyone ever imagined could be known. Or badgers, or orcas, or anything you want to know, you can find it. But there's no meaning put to it. It's just a conglomerate of information. So this is the reason for the information age. Excuse me, for the conceptual age. And so I don't remember the skills in the conceptual age in his book. It doesn't matter. You can read it. I recommend it. But uh, one of them is meaning. You've got to bring meaning. And what he means by that is in the conceptual age, a person who can make people understand their purpose in life and how things interact with it will experience meaning. It is the new currency. He wrote a second follow-up book, which is the name is escaping me right now, called Drive. There it is, Drive. And uh, it's, it's okay. It's an okay book. The first one was amazing. The second one is fine. But his point in the second book is that people don't work for money anymore. They work for meaning. He, he goes on and he says in the first book, he says that the money is becoming so unimportant to the first world nations Okay, the, the, the big money makers, United States, United Kingdom, you know, Japan, South Korea, South Korea, what am I saying? Yeah, South Korea, um, Singapore, you know, all over the world. These, these countries that have been financially astute for many, many years, they're kind of tired of money and they're looking for meaning. They're groping around for a thing to put their time and money into that matters. And... Uh, I'm a product of that thing. You know, I, I believe it, and I've experienced it. I left my professional life before I had any of this language in public accounting and went to work in a church because I was looking for meaning, wasn't I? I was. I was like, ah, I've got to find a meaning to this. I've got to have a reason to get out of bed that's bigger than somebody's concern about a financial statement. I just don't care about that. Well, that and a couple of other tools uh, have combined into this tool that I call the purpose train. And we'll spend the rest of this afternoon, I think, the next 45 minutes or so, talking about the purpose train. It's really simple. And the reason I'm teaching you this is so that you can put all of these ideas in context. You can put them, imagine like a Christmas tree, you can dress your tree with ornaments that make sense. And then you can begin to move forward. You know, I'm not really interested in teaching a bunch of really cool ideas and get you guys to raise your eyebrows and go, oh, I really like that idea, and then to leave and have you no, not go anywhere, not change anything. I'm just not interested in that. I want to see you guys change. I would like to come back in a year, and uh, I wish I could find out a way to do this, but actually have a, a uh, test or survey or something that would be simply taken that would show, yeah, you know, I used to be, here's a graph, I used to be here, and now I'm here, and I'm heading there. In their dream, in their life. However you define that. That could be your checkbook, but more importantly, it's probably a quotient, some kind of a measurement on real true riches. The Bible uses the phrase true riches. I wonder how we would define that. I have some ideas um, this is a bit of a 
Oh, I left my manual. I just need to borrow this manual really fast. I don't want to scream. There we go. In the back of your manual... Ooh, nice notes. Let's see. What'd she say here? (laughs) My nose is not that big. I'm teasing you. La, la, la. Oh, guess what? It's not in here. It's in another manual. I apologize. Here's what I'll do. Um, This is not a ploy, but it could sound like one. I don't mean it to be a ploy. There's a thing I have called the wealth map. It's a very simple thing. There's not much to it. But I was thinking it's in the back of this manual. If you want, I will email you a wealth map. Okay? So the ploy part is, if you give me a list of your... Do we have a list of emails? Did anyone in the registration sign up for email? Yes, actually, I did have a list. Okay. Everybody? No. No. Yeah. So maybe what we could do is pass around a paper... Maybe we could start it now, and people could sign up on their email list. Write them really clearly for me, okay? And what I'll do is I'll email you an example of a wealth map. Does that sound good? Yeah. Or we could just put it up as a PDF on Oh, let's do that. Because it's going to be a free podcast, and we can include the wealth map. I'll do that. I'll email you the wealth map, and then you can post it. Her. That dude's smart. Awesome. Awesome. Suzanne, we found a great solution. Yeah. We're going to email you and you're going to do it all. (laughs) I know. We voted while you were out. All in favor, say aye. Aye. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so Will, I'll, um, I'll send a PDF of that to you, and then you can just make it available, and whoever wants it can go find it. Anyway, the wealth map, basically, uh, it's four layers like a cake, and the bottom is things that we think about as money. Cash is there, stocks and bonds are there, you know, just a bunch of things that we think about when we make investments, gold, silver, jewelry, all that kind of stuff. That's laying on the bottom, and it's on the bottom to prove that it's the lowest priority. And then you move up through the other layers. You'll, you'll get toward, uh, I think the second one is your, um, trying to work from memory. I'll do better than that. I actually have it right here. This is the, finan- this is the uh, Prosperous Home, which there are none here. It's a secret. If I, if I showed you this inside of here, I'd have to kill you all, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'm actually coming back here to do this. That's right. Thank you, Brent. I totally spaced out. I'm doing... Um, when Brent asked me to do this, I was like, wow, there's a lot of material. How do I come and just do pieces that doesn't feel very good? He said, why don't you, maybe you could come back. So we, we just set up a date, we think, in the end of September-ish. We're not sure yet. We'll work this out. But what we'll do is... Aw. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That felt good. Thank you. So, yeah, so um, today and last night, we're doing Pieces of Prosperous Soul. When I come back, 
in September-ish, I'll probably do a couple other, probably round out the rest of the Prosperous Soul message. And then if I come back again, maybe win-win. We don't know when. Yeah, when. Not if, but when. That's right. For the third time, I'll, uh, I'll bring Prosperous Home down and we'll do a Prosperous Home. Yeah, this will be fun. This will be fun. But uh, here we go. On the bottom is uh, money and all of the things we think of as assets. There's a bunch of weird stuff down here. Commercial paper, commodities, annuities, mineral rights, a bunch of weird things. Most of us don't even know what they are. Uh, above that layer is this thing called service or your platform. Now, this, this page is a wealth map. This is mapping wealth. You see, riches and wealth and money are all different things, right? Money is currency in your wallet. I don't actually have any right now, but uh, that's the green stuff that we carry around. That's, that's money. But what I buy with my money is riches. It's converted cash into whatever, my new car, my patio furniture, or whatever it is I'm buying. But neither of those are wealth, you get that? So wealth contains those things on the bottom, money and riches. And then above it is your platform. And what I mean by that is your home, your work, where you go to church, where your mission field is, your city government. Okay, those are platforms. If you're on a board. Above that, higher priority still is this thing called wisdom. It's the stuff that we nurture. It's the stuff that we garden like a garden and it's our experience and our education it's our training and our talents it's our alliances it's our prophetic words it's our dreams and visions um, a lot of fun stuff in here but on the top is what I call our treasures or our true riches and what's on top is your good name keeping a good name matters Peace. You know, my, my quote from Ed Silvoso was about the lack of peace in that wealthy class. Peace is, people would die for that. And they have confidence. Paul says, don't throw away your confidence. And we throw it away when we sin, you know that? We lose some things when we sin. One of them is we throw away our confidence. Paul says, don't throw that away. Do you know that there are some things that we as Christians don't give away? Did you know that? Right? Peace is one of them. You don't give away your peace. You don't give away your purity. So sometimes we think as a Christian we just give everything away. No, there's things you don't keep, give away. Hezekiah gave away something. He showed his enemy his true riches. Right? And he got rebuked for it. It was a tragic end. That's another story. But you don't give away... Well, let me keep on going. Your treasures sound sleep. Do you know the Bible says, this is why I prayed for you guys last night, that you would sleep like sweet babies. Who had a good night's sleep? Come on. That's awesome. How many have been having sleeping troubles and last night it was better? Found a shift go on in their sleep. That's right. I expected that. That's exactly why we prayed it. Because the Bible says that the sleep of the righteous is sweet, unharassed by evil. That's true riches. Sabbath. Sabbath is big. How are we on time? Yeah, I probably better skip that one. That is a terrific message on Sabbath. 
the Lord taught me. But I'm going to wait, and when I come back, we'll worry about that one. Peace of mind, generations, legacies. Anyway, that's a wealth map. When I talk about wealth, when I use the word wealth, I'm talking about all four of those layers. I'm talking about true riches, okay? Money is part of it, but it's on the bottom of the pile, right? Because money is just a tool. When it's our God, we have a real problem. Money is a terrible master, but a perfect slave. And so we wanted to um, keep going on this purpose train. And the reason I tell you about books like Anointed for Business and by Ed Silvoso and A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink and there's others is because they are touching on something, this, this shift in the planet toward a hunger for meaning. It's a global shift, you understand? It's literally, it's so massive, it will change the course of, of humanity. It's like of the magnitude of going from the industrial age to the, to the, conceptual, uh, to the uh, agricultural age. I went backwards, but... But it's, it's as, as massive a shift as you can imagine. And I believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to create a desire for meaning on the planet. Because the, the world is getting glutted on satisfying and gratifying our own little teeny shallow needs. We're getting tired of it. And so you can see what, where that happens to wreck people. And so this purpose train is really simple. Um, it's four boxes. And by the way, this isn't in your manual, so this is bonus. This is part of a different class I teach on business called Enterprise. So find yourself a white page and draw four boxes. One, two, three, four. Okay? Four boxes on top of each other. Leave a little space between each box because they're attached by a little connection, like a train. You see that? So they're in a row. Can you guys see that okay? And the top box, you can write a, the word purpose. Porpoise. Poipoise. <laughs> Somebody's trying to stay awake over there. I know that lunch. How are you guys staying awake? You guys okay? Yeah. Purpose, vision, strategies. Strategies and tactics. Okay. Purpose, vision, strategies, and tactics. And the way this works, I define the words a little bit like I mean them. Tactics are detail tasks. You could even put in brackets, tasks. All right? I'm going to write over here, tasks. They're really yes or no issues. It's the thing that most of us struggle with on decisions. Because usually we're approached with a tactical choice. Do we invest in Naira or invest in a couch? Right? Do I get 
an Americano or a decaf, half-calf, cappuccino, right? Right? We have these decisions, these problems we wrestle with. They tend to be, do I do it or not? They're like right or left. Do you see what I mean? Tactics are like the brush that we rush through as we drive through the forest in our lives. It's just in our face. It's slapping us. It is busying us, and we tend to panic and agonize over making the right decision, most of the time we're making a tactical decision. Well, you're only going to accidentally make a tactical choice right. It's only going to be an accident to do it right, unless it's pulled by something bigger, which is strategies. Right? Strategies are your, your goals. Strategies are your goals. Where I want to go, how I'm going to get there, tactics are the detailed choices that we face all the time. So tactics are where most of our world lives and most of our people... Most of us drive our lives as if the tactics are the engine. And when tactics are the engine of your life, it's going to kink you up. Because trains are meant to be pulled. Right? They're meant to be pulled. They're not very well pushed. You, they do push them. For those of in here that are old railroaders, just to let you know I am too. And I know you can push a train, but you don't push them uphill very good. They're meant best pulled. So when you make your tactical choices your, your engine, you're going to kink up your strategies, vision, and purpose in life. You're going to only accidentally make a right tactical choice unless it's pulled by something bigger, which is your strategies. But even strategies are going to only accidentally be right unless it's pulled by something bigger. And that's your vision. You can look at it like vision is what you see. Oops. What? Vision is what you see. It answers the question, what? What do you see? The reason we're using the purpose training, we started with the 10 million, is several of these... Some of these were vision statements, some of these were strategies, and some of these were tactics. If we did turn this into you know, a little bit longer session, we would have had what's called a five-by-five. Five. And I won't tell you what that all means, except that it's a big old spaghetti-throwing f- nightmare. It's just like, wow, we all get in a big food fight, and we throw around our ideas, and they all end up on a whiteboard. Who cares about the five-by-five part? I'll explain that somewhere else. I'm just saying, if you got all your ideas out on a whiteboard, you would find that you would mark, you would underline some in red because those would be visions. And some would be underlined in blue because those would be strategies. And some you could underline in orange because, oh, those are my tactical problems. Does that make sense? But none of these... Even your vision statements 
are not going to be only accidentally good unless it's pulled by something bigger. And that's your purpose. Purpose answers the question, what? Oh, excuse me. Answers the question, why? Why are you here? Now, we've got a nice little train on the board. Why, what, and how? So, you see it? And your strategies are more akin to your goals and your tactics are more akin to specific tasks or decisions to be made. And the reason I'm showing you this is I gave you a million dollars and you guys started, you have your lists. Some are 13 lines long. Others are just two lines long. But Sheila's were interesting. I think hers were right here. She wanted a bigger house. I think you started out with a bigger house. And then she said, well, but really what it was is so that I could, I think you could host more people. And then you mentioned I'm expanding my territory. See how her, I want a bigger house. That's, that's a strategic statement. You see that? And then she said, well, but really what I'm wanting to do is meet more people, interact with more people, minister to more people. And then she migrated up to, I need territory. I would love to explore more with this. But what I feel like she did when she said territory is she brought her strategic statement up to a vision statement. She has a vision. What do you see? I see myself influencing territory. And what are you going to do out of that? Well, out of that, I think my strategy is to build a house. It needs to be a bigger house. But inside that house, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to minister to some people and blah, blah, blah. She would fill in the box. She would fill in the blanks, right? And then pretty soon it's going to come down to, okay, what are you going to do first? And now she makes tactical choices. See, the way the purpose train works is when you get a, a tool like I gave you, the million dollars, and you start writing down all of your ideas, what you're going to find out is that the, you probably have four kinds, four families of ideas listed on your paper. And you've got to never make a choice from the bottom up. If you make a choice, see, if I turn this thing upside down, or if I, let me say it this way, if this tactics box is my engine, you are going to just be fretting. Oh my gosh, brick or wood? Should I use brick or wood? What should I do? And you're going, well, what are you trying to build? And I'm saying brick or wood. Brick or wood, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm so nervous and afraid. I don't know if I'm going to make the right choice. I need to decide brick or wood. Pastor, brick or wood? I need to know. And I get people in my office. Brick or wood? Steve, what do I do? They got a tick going on and things are happening. <laughs> I'm like, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we decide brick or wood, what are you building? You're not going to make a good tactical choice until you know it, it's pulled by something bigger. What are you building? I'm trying to build a bridge. Oh, awesome. Your strategy is to build a bridge. Well, now that makes sense. Let's make the bridge out of brick because those are better than wood bridges. Let's do brick. So the tactical choice solves itself when it's pulled by something bigger. Does that make sense? 
Now, how do you apply this to your own life? If you've got a wrestling match in something in your life, I don't know what to do with this. I, do, I just don't know which way to go. Make, evaluate it from this new angle. Is this a tactical decision? And I'm willing to bet it is. Oh, well, I need to know what my strategy is that I'm trying to accomplish. I'm trying to build a bridge. And that determines probably the better material, brick or wood. Let's do brick. Brick makes a better bridge. Well, again, your strategy is only going to be half, you know, accidentally right unless it's pulled by something bigger. So if you were in my office, I'd say, so why are you building bridges? Yeah, I should jump to what. But what do you see? What's the deal with the bridge? And they would go, well, I see myself transporting, I see myself crossing the city, Reading has a river that runs right through the middle of it. So, you know, maybe this person's vision is to vision is to minister on both sides of this river. Okay? This is why they decided on a strategy to build a bridge. Like, oh, that's that's good to know. Your strategy will be pulled by your vision. What do you see? This is where we were throwing spaghetti a while ago. If I gave you a million dollars, what would you spend it on? Training for revival. Well, that sounds strategic to me because there's probably something above it. I see revivalists circling the planet. You see that? I want a bigger house. That feels very strategic to me, but territory felt like a vision statement. I want to invest. And then she changed it. Actually, I decided I'm going to travel and see where the need is. That is a tactical decision. You see that? She modified her tactics based on a strategy to bring lasting solutions. So we have all three right here. She has a a vision statement to bring real solutions to countries. Right? Not one of these so far has a purpose statement in it, does it? But you can see how they're pulling themselves along how this top one, vision, will make really smart strategies. They will full follow. Let's just go over here. Debt repayment. That's a tactical move. Why would you want your debt paid off? So I'm out of bondage. Why do, we, why do you want to be out of bondage? Well, my, my strategy is to get out of debt, so now I have funds. I have some money to do some stuff. Well, what do you see? What do you see yourself doing? Well, I see myself becoming a financier of startup businesses in foreign countries. Whatever. You follow me? Tactics, strategies, visions, but all of these are pulled by the highest vision. Tithes, it's another tactical decision. Albums, really, it's dreams. She's following up on a dream she had, some things. Why would you do that? That's a tactical choice, perhaps a strategy, but still be pulled by vision. Interesting thing. My observation in the Christian realms that I run in, we kind of stop at vision. I mean, it, it's right here, all of this. We think in terms of vision. Our language, our foreign language of Christian speak is around vision. But you know what? Vision is a classic example of a, of a midlife crisis. It's a person who runs with a vision, and men, I'm speaking to men from a man's perspective. I can't speak to the women on this, but I don't know you that well. But 
Um, men, we are great at getting a vision and just plowing. And we will plow for years. I mean, we will drag mountainsides along behind us. And then all of a sudden, we look up one day, and our wife is gone. Our kids hate us. Our dog ran off. Our truck won't start. We're living a country song. Right? We're living country music. And yeah, Mama even left. Mama said, you're stupid. Spirit of stupid on that boy. So vision is not enough. And yet our language and sometimes our paradigm is around vision. And this is super important and why I presented this whole afternoon on the purpose train. Because when we start doing things like we've been doing and rebuilding your foundations, and, and you begin to build on that, what happens if you're faithful and little and God adds to it? What if he promotes you? You know, one of the things that didn't come out in the question, what would you do with your millions, I forgot to ask. How many realize that when, let's say it's 10 million. That's 10 times what we just did. So now, your first million's gone. Well, what if you've got nine more? You've got some real challenges on your hands. What do you do with nine million dollars? Dig a little hole and put it in a can in your backyard? Do you give it to Blazing Fire Church? This is a loaded question. Just yes. Okay, bad example. Um, <laughs> you kook. I, I asked for that one. Yeah, I, I just, here's a slow pitch right here. Yeah, no, think about it. Um, I usually use Bethel Church in that spot, and, and so I will now. If you, had, if you got $10 million and you used nine of it up, or one of it up on your, on your dreams and whatnot, and you had $9 million left, should you give it to Bethel Church? And I tell, often I tell people, where is the stewardship in that? If God wanted Bethel to steward $9 million, he would give Bethel $9 million and we would steward it. And in fact, God is blessing us in many ways. But my point is, in your hands, I, I've had some people say, I asked, what would you do if you won the lottery? I'd give it all to Bethel Church. And I go, where's the stewardship in that? Why would God have given you the $9 million? We're supposed to be supernatural stewards, right? There's no... There, you know, now, now, if God told you, this is different. But God telling you implies you're operating from the purpose box. And I don't think many Christians do. I want you guys to do that. I want you guys to operate your lives, orient them from the box called purpose. It's going to require you to look above your vision. Your vision, I started to talk about the middle-aged man, you know, he, he'll go through his life and have a midlife crisis because when he looks up, he realizes, I have no meaning. This thing I've been pulling on for, in their case, maybe 25 years or 30 years, maybe he's been married 15 years or 20 years of that, or maybe all of it. He looks up and he doesn't, he, all the things that are true riches are missing. And he's just empty. This is the condition of the world, by the way. Of gaping holes of, of emptiness and loneliness. And they're rich. But this isn't about money. 
And so, what's purpose? How do you figure out your purpose? I want you to leave today knowing what your purpose is, or at least have a track towards your purpose. So I'll tell you a little bit about purpose. Purpose is, answers the question, why? Why are you here? I think about purpose, and um, probably, again, find yourself some space to write, but I want you to think about when you were a little kid, and um, I'll use myself as an example. I was, I told you I grew up on a ranch, and I had my uncle's hunting dog, Queenie. I mentioned her last night, I think. And old Queenie was a beautiful dog. And uh, Chesapeake, actually, is a breed. And uh, Queenie was out there. She was a hunting dog, but I was, I was teaching her about hunting. I mentioned that last night. I was teaching a hunting dog how to hunt. Okay. I'm probably seven years old. But I'm in the shade of the barn, and I'm talking to this old dog about how to hunt. Now, now Queenie, this is how it works. I'm going to shoot this gun, which was a pellet gun. Okay, I'm going to shoot this gun, and I'm going to shoot this duck out of the air. And when that duck hits the water, you're going to swim out there, and you're going to retrieve that duck in your mouth. Now, you're not going to squeeze it hard, but you're going to bring that duck right back to me. Queenie, do you understand me? And she'd look at me with those big brown eyes. She'd gaze in as if to say, I love you so much, dude. I have no idea what you're saying, but I think you're the best person I know. And I would just, I would just teach this, this dog... I realized that when I was teaching old Queenie, I, had, I was not putting on an act for anyone. Something was just coming out of me as natural as it could be. See, when we go back to our little ages, we get to kind of see a really innocent, pure version of ourselves. Because we got older with time and we learned how to straighten ourselves up and cover things up, right? But... Now, we're like that old piece of furniture. There's so many layers of paint on us, we don't even know what kind of wood we really were. We don't know if we're pine under there, or oak, or ash. What is that wood? We can't see it anymore. Life is like paint, layers and layers of paint. But purpose is like the grain in the wood that's inside of you. It's there. And if you've lost track of your purpose in life, it's helpful to go back and age and think, now what did I just kind of do? I want you to just think for a minute and think, well, you know what I just kind of did? I was kind of this or that. And I'd like you to put it in one word. Find a word that means all the things that you're feeling. Just take 30 seconds. About 15 seconds. Awesome. Who needs more time? You guys good? Okay. For me, I sit, I'm sitting in the shade and I'm talking to Queenie and out of me is coming this desire to teach. So the word I picked was, I'm a teacher. I just I didn't have to fake that. You know, when I stand up here and teach you guys, it's as natural for me as a duck in water. I just, this is what I love to do. I teach two or three times a week. 
I don't have to fake that. It just comes out of me. And I lost it for a long time because my life covered it up. I was an accountant. I don't have time to teach. I got to scold you for not doing your taxes right or whatever. But the word I picked in my box is the word teacher. It's a single word for me that captures the shade and Queenie and me as a boy talking. There's another word. I usually ask people to pick two or three words to fill inside their purpose box. All right? So I'll give you my second one. If you think of yours, just write them in. But I'll tell you my second one. I um, was also, going back to when I was little, I always imagined myself as a grandpa. Isn't that weird? I just knew I was going to be a grandpa. I don't know why. My grandpa was dead at that point. It's not like I even had a role model. I had no grandpas around. They were all gone. But I just knew I was going to be a grandpa. And so I thought about, well, what is a grandpa? That's like a father. That's like a fathering father. It's like the father of fathers. And I thought, okay, I think for me, it's just natural inside of me to father. I can't help myself. And so when I actually became a father, my two sons, um, you know, I just would have died for them. I mean, I wouldn't have to even think about it. It's like, oh, no, that's, that's what I do. I jump in front of buses and trains for these boys. That's what I do. And, in fact, I did. And there's a part of my story I won't share now, but maybe another time, about how I just about wiped myself out physically for working for these boys on their behalf. You understand? Just working myself to death. And so I realized, wow, fathering for me is like, I don't even have to try. It just comes out of me. So I wrote in another word called father. I just love to father. I love to protect, and I love to provide. Then I have um, one word, a third word. I'm trying to remember what it is. I'm telling you these stories, and I'm hoping they're giving you space to write in your own, right? Your father, and what is that other one? I can't remember the other one. I've not used this example for a while, but I basically, in this case, I have two names, two words that mean something powerful to me, right? When I think about a father, um, laying aside all of my experience with my natural dad and missing grandfathers and all this stuff, this is what a father means to me, and it feels amazing. Now, as I go through my life, and possibly in your life, you've covered that up, under layers of paint. But that stuff is still in there. That's your purpose. That's the, that answers the reason why I'm on the planet. I'm on the planet to teach and I'm on the planet to parent. Now, from the top down, I build my vision. I go, well, is it, I just kind of am a teacher I think I imagine I see myself teaching. I see myself teaching in big, big groups and small groups. The size of the group doesn't matter. I just see myself teaching. What's my, what's my vision? Well, I see myself teaching a technique that will break poverty spirit in the United States and even more so the mammon spirit. Okay? So I begin to build a vision that is pulled by my purpose. 
See how that's different? Before, I was building a, a vision, and who knows, it might have been from the pizza the night before. I was so inspired by this pizza. I've got a new, a new vision. And missing that purpose box, this becomes a risk. And with, now that I have a vision, it pulls my strategies. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll start teaching. And every time I teach, I'll record it, just like right now. And every time I record it, I'm going to take notes, and I'm going to make manuals and product. I'm going to start building products. So this is my example. You're going to have your own example. Because you guys have some monstrous ideas. Not monstrous horrible, monstrous amazing. Like take over the world, Pinky. Amazing. Right? Like take over the world, Pinky. I mean, these things are huge. And I know that if we had kept going on, this, this thing, I could have filled a whole wall of these ideas, right? She's back there flexing. Yeah. I look back just in time to catch her go, ah. Sorry. Yeah, she's pointing at her. That's awesome. Because we are powerful. Now, this, this idea of a purpose train merging with the idea of a prosperous soul. You see, if your prosperous soul, remember my definition of a soul that is submitted to, your, to the Holy Spirit in your life. That means what your soul believes submitted to what your spirit believes, right? And as that begins to lead, our body begins to follow too. And when our body begins to do things and our mind, our soul begins to prosper, we, we find new traction in our lives. We can actually begin to build but we have to build from our purpose. We have to build from purpose. There's one last piece to the purpose train. And then uh, I don't know what we're going to do, but I want to add this. There's a little hook on top. It's like a coat hanger hook. Little hook. And there's, there's two dowels. You know what I mean by dowel? There's two pegs. One peg is labeled the orphan spirit. The other peg is labeled the spirit of adoption. You see, this purpose train will have very different results if it is hanging on the orphan spirit. Because your orphan is a counterfeit identity. And your identity dictates your purpose. And your purpose will pull your vision. And your vision will determine your strategies. And your strategies will dictate your tactics. The orphan spirit. This is why the enemy has to have us not connected to Father God. If the, if the church, not if, when the church figures out their identity in Christ... We're going to be like a moving, like a moving train. You know, you know how you stop a moving train? You don't. You don't stop a moving train. The enemy does not stop a moving train. But my dad happened to be a railroader 
Did you know that if a, no matter how powerful that locomotive is, you've seen those locomotives. Man, they're mu- nothing but steel muscle. And if that locomotive is sitting still, if you take a rock smaller than my hand and wedge it in front of those big turning wheels, that thing will not move. Did you know that? That, that engine will, that engineer will pour on the power. That engine will just start heating up. He'll start vibrating and shaking. And he'll push against that rock, but it won't move. And he'll pour on more power, and that thing will just vibrate. He'll just... That's, imagine the size and power of that locomotive. And it's just, it'll just sit there, and it's connected to all these cars, and it's just, it's just vibrating. And it won't move because there's a little stone wedged in the very front. That's the enemy and the orphan spirit. The enemy has taken a little teeny idea and disconnected us from our identity in Christ and he's done that through our layers of, we call it layers of paint, right? You've gone through your life and you've interacted and you've gotten your head knocked in, you've bumped into people, you've been hurt and our soul covers that up or answers that or modifies and brings understanding to that, but if the understanding isn't in alignment with the truth of the gospel of peace, we're going to lose our identity with God. We're going to lose Papa God. We're going to forget who he is. We're not going to understand it. And that orphan spirit is a rock in front of that big locomotive thing. But if we take this off, and we hang this on spirit of adoption, Romans 8.15. Read it, memorize it, tape it to your bathroom window, brush your teeth to it every day. Now, identity comes from the Father. And identity de- determines our purpose. Oh, Steve and Donna get a new revelation. We decide, you know what? We are going to, our our purpose on this planet is to be a father and a mother and a deliverer. And so what do we see out of that? Well, we have a vision, we do. We have a vision of this thing crossing the United States of America, we do. We say, I see it internationally. I see it eroding the fabric that the enemy has built in this spirit of mammon fraud and this poverty spirit. You know, there's talk talk about poverty, but I but there's so much to say about it. But we can just dismantle it, and because that's what I see, we decide. You know what? One day I was sowing money into the bucket, and the Lord said, He asked me, "How much do you think you'll sow in your entire lifetime?" And I thought, "Wow, you know, well, I tithe and then I give offerings on it. It's that's quite a bit." And He said, "Yeah, it's this much." And He showed me a pile of beans was kind of mean being an accountant that he would do that but yeah yeah I gave him a, I, I sozoed myself over that because he didn't seem too worried about it but anyway he showed me this is your lifetime of tithes and offerings as a pile of beans and I'm like huh and he said what would happen if you built a giving organization a foundation that it's it's an economic motor that just turns and gives I thought, oh. And so my wife and I built in, uh, into our vision. It changed our vision, and we were planning on, ultimately, this isn't a ask for anything. This is me just blabbing here. Is that okay? Because I'm, I'm not trying to ask for anything. 
It's not even there yet. We haven't built it. But one of these days, we expect to build a foundation. And we're going to build something that outlives us. Because in my lifetime, I'm going to create a pile of beans worth of giving. And it's going to do a lot of good. Or I could build a foundation that is a giving organization. And he showed me a mountain of beans. And he said, this thing, this thing that goes on past your lifetime, it's going to outlive you. You need to, you need to figure out how to transport this information beyond your life. Like, oh my gosh, well, I, I do have to do that. As a father, I have to do that, don't I? And I thought about my boys, and I, I got I to gotta give them a foundation and an understanding on how to run it because it's going to outlive me. And when I'm dead, that thing's going to still be turning. It's pouring it out. What's it going to go after? It's going to go after the end of poverty. Poverty's a robber. It's going to go after the end of poverty. I'm like, yeah, we could see poverty end on the planet. Why not? Why not? In our lifetime, we could see poverty ended globally. Um, I forget the guy's name. Jeffrey Sachs. He's not a believer. He's, a, um, he's the president of some massive, beautiful organization. Anyway, he's one of those giant... There's, there's two tribes of economists out there, and Jeffrey Sachs is the guy that represents the kind of utopian side. Utopian is not, it's not a good word for them. Economists, they kind of poo-poo that. We're utopians, did you know that? We believe that there's a happily ever after ending. And Jeffrey Sachs, uh, in, his, in his own way, he's not a believer as far as I know, but he's not, uh, he's not a believer, but he is a utopian. And he says, hey, we from the top down can actually bring the end of poverty to the planet. There's actually enough wealth running around on the planet today to end malaria in a day, basically. To end, to bring fresh water to every single child on the planet. Now, the, the scope of this stuff is massive. He wrote it in a book called The End of Poverty, and it's probably about 15 years, 10 years old now. It's a thick book, but it's a terrific read if you're into that. And I absolutely loved it, reading it. I was so inspired. But I was shocked to realize... Um, the scope that we can reach, you know, there's, there's so much wealth running around that we can, if we, if we harness this stuff and begin to operate on purpose, what's possible? Now, let's, let's come out of the clouds for a minute, and I've got to ask you, look at your list that you made from the million dollars and categorize them into... Tactics and strategies, visions, and maybe you had a purpose on there. But I'd like you to take a little bit of time right now and work on your purpose. Why are you on the planet? We spent last night in this morning session working on getting you from the spirit of orphan to the spirit of adoption. So now, why are you here? Holy Spirit, talk to us right now. I want you to repeat after me. Papa, why am I here?
If you're feeling depressed, that's a fingerprint from the wrong guy. If you're feeling blank, welcome to Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained. We get to practice this. Practice implies that you're going to do it well and sometimes you're not going to do it so well. So if you're sitting there freaking out because I can't see a thing every time Steve does this, every time he asks me to repeat after me and then write it down, I hear nothing. Welcome to a mystery. Did you know that it's a, mis- it's a glory of God to hide a matter? And it's the glory of kings to seek it out. That's a scripture. It's the glory of God to hide a matter. And it's the glory of kings to seek it out. Welcome to a mystery, stewards. That you would be known as servants of Christ and stewards of his mysteries. Don't get discouraged because you're not hearing something. Maybe most of you are. But if you're not, do not get discouraged. Stay after it. You know what, as kings, if we're that easily discouraged, we're too fragile. I think we got this idea in, in our version of Christianity. We're so fragile. Oh, I hurt my feelings. Well, don't be a baby. Get over it. Grow up. Let's grow up. Let's become mighty. Let's not be all delicate and fragile. God is not fragile. That dude is wild. That dude is Aslan. And I, and I have learned to just get tough. Just grow up. Let's not be babies anymore. And go after it. Ask the king of kings, the lover of your soul. If you think you're the only one he won't talk to, you're fooling yourself. You're not that special. Okay? He loves the dickens out of you, but you're not going to be the only person that he's never going to talk to. That's another version of pride. Get in there and ask the king, why am I here? If you're not sure right now, think back. What did you just kind of do as you were a kid? Did you love on people? Did you nurse people? You know, did you just take care of little dolls and your friends? Maybe you're that person that everybody comes to and just talks to and they trust you. You probably have a gift of wisdom on you or maybe a counseling gift or calling. Find a word that means that to you and put it in the box. Once you get some things in the box, I want you to look at your vision pieces. Remember your list that we made from the one million and we just I had I suggested you label some as strategies and some were vision statements and some were tactics. Look at the ones that are visiony and see which ones are not connected to your purpose. And this is how you thin out your life. Because when you're running without purpose on attach, attached, it's like you're running blind, and we kind of build stuff for us to do. And, it, and at one point I had a raise of hands. How many have just are running really, really busy lives? And don't raise your hands again because you don't need to. If that's you, and I can put my hand up, oh my word, I have a busy life. But it's like, 
I better make sure that all the things I'm doing are attached to the head. And really this little graph, if we were in a coaching session, I'd be doing, we'd be sitting in my office and I'd have my feet up on my foot rest and I'd be scribbling around on a piece of paper and we'd look like something at this point, we would have identified a purpose. And then we would have identified a couple of visions this person has. And then we would have identified a couple of strategies. Maybe both of these feed into that. You see it? And then we tend to find a thousand tactics. These are all the things this person is trying to do or trying not to do. And we start mapping these things. And we go, oh, this one, that kind of ties in really nicely. Sadly, that vision isn't attached to the purpose, so that's probably a waste of time. You see that? So we're going to just identify that. Let's go a little farther. You've got a bunch of tactics over here. They all connect to a strategy, but that strategy is a waste. It's, you're just burning energy. You're not going anywhere. Why are you doing that? And usually the person's going, I have no idea. Well, it's because you've allowed the strategy box to be your engine. And you, because it's comfortable and you're pushing your life from a strategy end, but pretty soon, because trains are meant to be pulled, you kink your vision and your purpose up in life. So if you find something that isn't attached to your vision, let's just get rid of those. And they go, oh, I'm so glad. Good, I'm done with that. And then we go, now look at these, man. This one and this one and this one all attach right to your strategy. And that all feeds right up. I think you probably need to trim off this vision. But look at this nice, healthy structure we have built in your life. It's thin. It's nimble. It's powerful. It's being pulled by purpose. And look at all the stuff we got rid of our li- out of our lives. That's how you make life decisions. That's how you groom your life down. It sounds easy, but it really is. That's what's cool about coaching is you don't have to have actually know anything. You get to just sit there and go, hmm. And then they go, well, actually, I should probably get rid of this. And then you go, hmm. And they go, thank you, Steve. And I go, yes. Is this relating to anyone? Is this helpful? This is a tool that I use in business coaching, but it works in your personal life. Because of the nature of the room, there's you know a bunch of us in here, so we're kind of flying over the top. So I'm hoping you can make it real, but what I, what I mean by make it real is make it actually land in your life. Actually begin to direct your life, your decisions that you're making, if they're tactical, make sure they're pulled by a strategy that is pulled by a vision that is pulled by your purpose and hanging on the peg of adoption. It make you pretty pretty unstoppable. And you know, I'm a busy guy. I'm not moving real fast, but like a glacier, you don't stop those. So I'm just kind of moving along and invite you to come with me. Prosperous soul.
Let's go be prosperous. Let's go push this mountain over. Let's just move that mountain right out of the way. Let's just keep moving. And make sure that we're focused and doing our stuff on purpose. Does that make sense? Thank you, Jesus. I think what I'm going to do... Let me look at my notes real fast. I think we're done. When I come back next time, I'm fixing. I'm a fixing to talk about the spirit of poverty and the spirit of mammon and how to break them both. But I've already told you the the punchline. My grandpa says you don't wrestle with a pig. Because you both get muddy and the pig likes it. So you don't wrestle with the spirit of mammon and you don't wrestle with the spirit of poverty. You cut the root of the spirit of of orphan. Okay, you cut the parent and you go and you reconnect with Father God. Right? So that's prosperous soul in a nutshell. I'm feeling like you guys got what you need to go forward. You feel like you got something? Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. So, Father God, I just... I thank you for the men and women in this room. I just ask you to honor them and reward them. I'm asking you to... Um, well, Lord, I, I asked you earlier to put on them a spirit... a, a mantle that was a... Evangelism of jealousy that carries with it favor. So I'm asking the Lord that you would honor that and and show these men and women how to walk under that mantle. Lord, teach them how to use money and not be used by money. Let money be a weapon in their hands, a slave to them, enslaved by them and their and their purpose, and not be a master in their lives. I pray, Lord, that the spirit of poverty would be broken down because it's, it's a fraud and that the, the shiny thing called mammon would be revealed for the empty, ugly monster that it is. And we, Lord, we ask that you would navigate us through, that we would learn how to move past poverty influence and, and mammon's influence and move out into this destiny, God, that you have dreamed about for us. God, you imagined things about each one of us, Lord, that we are only just bumping around on the edges. I pray that we would plunge in. I pray that for every man and every woman in this room, and there's a couple of children, and I pray for them as well. And so, Lord, we pray that this becomes momentum in our life, and it carries on in generations. Lord, I'm asking that this isn't just only for our lives because our lives are like a vapor but it carries on and it becomes something that passes to our children our natural children and also to those around us that we influence our spiritual children Lord I'm asking that you would anoint uh, anoint us for good works in Christ that we would be bound in spirit like Paul was in Acts where he says that he goes to Jerusalem 
bound in spirit, not knowing what lays before us. But it says he, he says he presses on, even though he's had uh, the Holy Spirit warning him of chains and tribulations, he says he has not moved because he understands his purpose. And Lord, we are not a fragile bunch. We are a bunch of ferocious tigers. And Lord, that we would not be frail. We would be brave like Paul. And we would be, we would be beautiful like Joseph. And we would be a justice maker like Boaz. And we would be a, a leader like Abraham. And we would be a counselor like Daniel. And we'd be a steward like Joseph. And we would be a bride that becomes so irresistible that your son has to come and take us back. Because we do want to be like him. We want to make him smile. We want to make our, our husband, Jesus, giddy to come back for us. Both man and woman, both of us, we can say that. We're the bride of Christ and this, this beautiful Jesus is going to be our, our husband. And Lord, we want to be so amazing at that. And I pray it demonstrates through our hands, through our ministries, through our businesses, through our offices, through our pens and pencils, through our computers, through our writing and our math, through our shopping lists and the way we raise our babies and the way we love our spouses. Yeah, Jesus. And I pray all of this in your beautiful name, Lord. It's because of you that we're even here. So we just offer, you know, if you would, why don't we just stand up real quick. And all the best that you have, all that is most beautiful about yourself, I want you to take that and offer it to Jesus just in a moment here. Just hold it out to him. Whatever is beautiful about yourself, it's, you know, maybe it's your, your voice, the way you sing, or maybe it's the way you write poetry and nobody even knows, or maybe it's the way you understand problems and the way you talk to friends. Maybe it's the way you have patience. There's, there, there's so many beautiful things in each of us. And Lord, we want that to be beautiful and we want that to be pronounced. We want it to be a glory upon us so that we can give you glory. Oh, and we give you glory right now. We give you the best that we have. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just stay here for just a moment. Thank you, King. Thank you, beautiful God. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And I just pray this all, dedicating it to the King, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. <laughs>